Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting and Politics, the podcast where we have smart conversations about all that and more. I wrote the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and guess what? We've been having this conversation about common sense pregnancy and parenting and politics for three years now. Thanks for coming over to join us. It's a big, big job having and raising children and we need to talk it out, right? Right. So this week, we've got a long, juicy conversation with our guests, so I'm not going to ramble on too long today. We'll get right to it. We're going to talk with Dr. Kelly Colwell, aka Dr. Lady Doctor. She has specialized in women's reproductive health for 17 plus years, working as a fellowship-trained OBGYN, including as a medical officer for the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland, and a senior medical advisor for the International Planned Parenthood Federation in London. It's been one of her career goals to break down gender stereotypes in the medical profession, one patient and even a few doctors at a time. When Kelly is, isn't educating the masses. She is the chief medical officer of Evofem Biosciences, a company committed to improving the health of women throughout the world. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Kelly. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hello. Doing well, thank you. Well, good. So um, I introduced, I read your bio before we got you on the line here today, and I introduced you as Dr. Kelly Colwell, a.k.a. Dr. Lady Doctor, and I bet you say, say that in a really good voice. I do. I see it just like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's go by first names on the podcast. And Great. first of all, where are you located? I think we're in the same time zone, which is so weird for me. Where are you? Uh, yeah. I am in San Diego. Ah, the land of sunshine. Yeah. I'm in yeah, I'm in Portland, the land of drizzle. Right, although it's drizzly here today, so I'm I'm feeling Portland vibes. It's bright, clear, cold, windy, sunny. It's great. It's like 38 degrees though. So, oh, there's that. Wow. Yeah, there's that. There's that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kelly, let's get right into it. I always like to ask first, uh, after I've read a bio, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> That's a very good question. I've been working on that my whole life. Um, <laughs> so I, I am a, uh, an OBGYN, and I work uh, full-time for a company called Evelstone Biosciences, which is a biotechnology company, biopharma company that is developing um, novel options for women to help them control their reproductive health. And so that includes a contraceptive vaginal gel that we mm -hmm. hope will be on the market um, in early 2020 um, and other products uh, that are aimed towards women's sexual and reproductive health. Uh, I also do still see patients uh, about once or twice a week. And so I really enjoy that and, and it helps to keep me sort of focused and remind me why I went through all that training and why I do what I do. Um, and I'm a mother of a, a young son who's nine and um, a really wonderful stay-at-home dad. Excellent. Nine-year-old boys, some of my most favorite humans on earth. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah. They're just so um, excited and intrigued by life at that point and starting to get their feet wet about what they like and who they are. Right? Absolutely. It's great. It's a really, really yeah. I, to be honest with you, every age since about two has been great. Um, but mm -hmm. I do, I do love mine. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I like it too. Yeah. 
So most of my listeners are, you know, probably either newly pregnant or newly parents. And I was a, a labor and delivery nurse for 20 years. Um, and so part of what we do here on the podcast is I give listeners kind of a lot of insider information about how healthcare decisions are made and influenced um, by, you know, a lot of behind the scenes factors. And if you were going to give listeners one piece of insider information, what do you think it might be? And you don't have to stop at one. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think that I think that that um, healthcare providers really do want to do what's best for you, and um, they really do want to give you the best possible care. They sometimes don't have the latest information. Um, they sometimes don't have the the time to spend with you really getting um, everything they need from you in order to be able to help you as, as best as possible. But for the most part, they really do have your best interest in heart. And I always tell women that if you aren't feeling that from your healthcare provider, then you should find someone else because there are plenty of us who really, really, really do care and really do want to provide you with the best possible healthcare and, and you know, that meets your sort of values and lifestyle. And so, you know, if for some reason you're not getting that, don't feel like that's just the way that healthcare works. Um, really, you know, look around and try to find another healthcare provider that is a better suited for you. That's a hundred percent true. Oh, oh God, I don't know. I mean, between the two of us, we've probably worked with thousands of obstetricians and healthcare providers. And right. I bet, I bet we could honestly say like 99% are good. Absolutely. They're, right. Yeah. And you hear the stories of the ones that positive. aren't. And yeah. And, and I think, unfortunately, you know, what the healthcare system today does is you often don't have the opportunity to really get to know your doctor, right? Because right. you're seeing a different person every time, or, you know, you at most get 10 minutes with them. And um, we don't need to see our doctors as often as maybe we, we used to in the past. And so, um, yeah, I think that that lack of trust, you know, really causes a lot of problems in the healthcare um, setting in the, in, you know, in the office. And yeah. so really doing whatever you can to find somebody that you can establish that trust with, I think is really important because that's the only way you're going to get the best possible care, I think. That's so true. And, you know, for women who have those kinds of options, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, shop around a little bit try a few different kinds of providers until you find the one that clicks. But, you know, for so, so many women, that's just not an option. They're in no, right. a situation where, you know, they get who they get and they don't throw a fit, you know? Right. And there's this huge conversation going on definitely throughout the United States, but around the world about specifically about women of color and the healthcare disparities that they face. And one of them is a lack of access to care providers that really understand need, their needs, you Absolutely. know, and really, and not just understand it, because I really do, I stand with 99% of doctors really are, have the best of intentions. But sometimes y'all don't have the infrastructure or the resources or the administrative capabilities or... You know, there's just so many factors that, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, it ain't easy. 
Yeah, and to we do try, the job you know, that you really want to do. Yeah, and we'll try, you know, a, a lot of times healthcare providers, if it's a topic that they're not, you know, comfortable with and they don't have the infrastructure to deal with it, uh, just as an example, you know, uh, domestic violence, um, you know, they'll sometimes just try to avoid the topic altogether to avoid getting into a situation where they don't know what to do and they don't have the, uh, the infrastructure or support to take care of it. Um, right, and so right. Why open that can of worms if you right. can't, you know, do anything about it? Right. Yeah, I know. I mean, can you imagine a healthcare system where obstetricians and gynecologists really could do the job that they went into it wanting to do, you know, without having their hands tied, without having to follow standards of care or guidelines that they may not agree with, without having to be tied to the computer? Can you imagine? Right, right. Well, I think there was a system like that before, wasn't there? <laughs> I know. I know there was. <laughs> it's certainly before, well, maybe just before my night, my time. But um, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Well, what do you want women to understand about prenatal care? And not just women, their partners, their, 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 um, you know, partners and families too. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the importance of prenatal care, I think is, is critical and, and actually not just prenatal care, but, you know, there's a real emphasis too on preconception care and, um, you yeah. know, making sure that you are in the best possible health even before you start trying to get pregnant, um, you know, is, yeah. is a factor that we don't talk about very often. But, you know, I think that all of this preventative care, you know, sometimes it, you don't see the immediate results or the immediate need for it. Um, right? Because prevention by its definition, as long as everything is going really well, nothing happens at all. Um, right. And I think that, you know, pre that uh, prenatal care is, is a prime example of, you know, really important public health preventative intervention that has been shown to absolutely, um, you know, improve outcomes in pregnancy. So, you know, it's really important and doesn't just start with the day that you get that uh, positive pregnancy test, but ideally, um, you know, should start in the period before you're even thinking about trying to become pregnant um, and making sure that, you know, especially in this um, day and age where women are, you know, putting off pregnancies later and later and may have more associated healthcare problems and things that have come up, um, need to make sure that any healthcare problems you do have, it be diabetes or um, high blood pressure or anything like that, are as good as possible control before you get pregnant. Um, and then monitoring, yeah. you know, your health during pregnancy is important, not just, you know, a lot of times you can be very focused on the developing fetus, but it's really important for the woman's health as well, because it is a, you know, it's definitely a time of dramatic, you know, changes in the physiology of your body and, and making sure that you're being monitored during that time is, is critically important. Yeah, it really is. I like that you shifted the focus back to mom because, you know, so often in our industry, it's all about the baby. It's all about the baby. It's all about the baby, you know, Absolutely. and women actually hear that their providers tell them, well, you want a healthy baby, right? Or mm -hmm. as long as we get a healthy baby. And now we're, we're all changing the way we're talking about that, about realizing, no, it, there's a mom. She was there first, you know, you support, yes, exactly. support the mom, you support the kid, you know, it's kind of, and, and frankly, as an, as an obstetrician, I mean, we were always taught the, the woman is our patient. Yeah full stop. I mean, she's the primary patient. And, um, you know, of course, the woman wants, in almost every circumstance in these situations, you know, to have the healthy outcome of a, of a baby. But on the other hand, it's, you know, the woman is the patient. Yeah. And I think we've seen so many things recently, especially in the postpartum period, 
where, you know, women's healthcare needs are just absolutely forgotten to the, you know, to pay attention to the newborn baby. Yeah. And, you know, we end up in situations where there are, health, you know, obstetricians out there who don't know that preeclampsia actually is more common in the postpartum period and can kill women, yeah. you know, and that the, that the um, you know, that the solution for preeclampsia isn't just delivery of the baby and that's the end of it. Right. You know? And so I think hopefully we're more and more realizing that, you know, the woman really is at the center of, of all of this care that we are providing. Yeah. I think that, you know, that's definitely our intention right now and our goal right now. I feel like the conversation is shifting in that direction, but maybe it's, you know, just cause I'm, that's what I'm talking about all the time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, a couple of recent, you know, um, news reports that came out of NPR and ProPublica about sort of the postpartum period yeah. and the risks for women in the postpartum period and the fact that even as, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology just has not put any emphasis at all in, in healthcare for women in the postpartum period. Right. So recognizing how important that is, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think, is a first step, you know, to recognizing that a woman is an important being even after, you know, the baby has left the building. Yeah, <laughs> but but insurance premiums aren't, or insurance payments aren't set up to let you guys see people mm -hmm. that way. You know, it's like right, you see right. them at delivery, you see them the day after delivery, and then it's bye-bye, see you in six weeks. And right. if they come in before then because they know they're having trouble or something, great. But if they don't, then women could be just developing a world of hurt and nobody's there watching them. And you guys can't watch them because you can't, you know, you're, right. yeah. It's a big, complicated Yeah, problem. well, and, and it's interesting because the, the pediatrician is really often the person who's able to see, I know. you know, a, a woman in, 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 in a timely fashion because they're checking in on the baby. Or the lactation and, um, specialist. Lactation specialists yes, are great, too. Great part yes, of the support true. system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although it's interesting when I was in postpartum, so I actually gave birth in Switzerland uh -huh. um, and Lucky. so I got to experience it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So I got to experience a completely different um, healthcare system, um, which I think gave me a little bit more of an insight as to what women who are not medical people face when they go into the healthcare system in the U.S. Because had I been in the U.S., I could have just, um, you know, talk to my friends and got an ultrasound whenever I wanted one and, you know, whatever it would be, I would be able to kind of skirt the system. But in Switzerland, I didn't have access to that. And one thing that I learned in, so they keep women in Switzerland in the hospital standard five days after a vaginal delivery and standard nine days after a C-section. Mm -hmm. And I, but, but what I learned is the reason they do that really is about breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. um, and they want the milk to have come in and to have let down before and make sure that you're breastfeeding successfully before they send you home. And I actually, the only thing that worked for me in the postpartum period was breastfeeding. I, I did fine. And what really frustrated me is that no one was paying attention to anything else that was going wrong with hmm. me. Um, you know, whether it be my postpartum depression that was developing, whether it was, you know, the fact that my baby had definitely something wrong that, you know, was causing a lot of, you know, sleepless nights and crying. And um, it, it, there just wasn't much attention to anything other than, well, how's the breastfeeding going? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm more than just a set of Food yeah. here, you know, I have other needs too. So I think it's it's an important, you know, sort of to to be to have a holistic uh, approach. And I think that you know uh, the great thing is that the lactation consultant is there and can actually see things and hopefully can address 
you know, a broader or get a woman to the right care should a broader uh, set of problems be developing. So I've spoken with um, quite a few women, you know, in, in the Netherlands who have had their babies there and they, you know, of course, across, you know, the, the global maternal health um, viewpoint, we're always praising that part of the world as having the, the best maternal health outcomes statistically across the board in every category. And um, it's, it's interesting to hear that as an American going into that and as a medical provider going into that, you didn't have that really positive experience. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because I, when I, when I went to my prenatal care there, I actually purposely um, sought out an American doctor because I thought, well, at least I'll understand her training. I'll understand, you know, we'll be speaking the same language. And she turned out to be truly terrible. Um, she, she really was not good at all. And, and uh, there were a series of things that happened in early pregnancy. I had some bleeding and things. And she either was completely non-responsive or dismissive or, you know, it, it was really a bad experience. And I ended up finding a lovely Swiss um, doctor who was like a Swiss grandma. And she was amazing. I mean, she was, she was truly great. And my, from my, my prenatal experience from there forward, was lovely. Mm. Um, but I, but I, yeah, I had a difficult postpartum period. And I remember when I went to her in my first postpartum visit, I said, no, I'm really not doing well. I, you know, I don't think that my mental state is right. Uh, you know, it's just not. And I remember she said to me, well, sometimes I've had women tell me in the postpartum period, they just want to step in front of a bus. And I say, well, postpartum is hard. Oh. <laughs> I thought, I don't think that's normal that we yeah. would want to step in front of a bus. No. Um, so yeah, you know, exactly. It's, it's not, um, were you, know, you able to get help? Perfect. I did. Um, I did, you know, I started to see a psychiatrist, although I was, I'm, I'm the worst patient ever. I didn't do anything that she recommended that I do. <laughs> I, I was too worried to take any antidepressant medication. I didn't want to take time off of work. Um, <laughs> So I was a bad patient and I eventually just got over it. But, but you knew you a, had support, you know, you right. did, you did right. utilize something. You went and saw somebody who was able to take care of you and monitor you. That's taking yeah. care of yourself, you know, and there was, and I, probably, did. I had a, there was probably an instinct there that said, mm, I, the meds aren't for me right now. You know, unemployment isn't for me right now. You, you probably kind of knew what you were doing. Well, yeah. thank you. I didn't feel like it at the time, but no, I mean, I, it was one of those experiences where I had, you know, I had a very supportive husband. Um, unfortunately we were living in Europe, so I didn't have the support of a broader family um, yeah. network, but you know, I, I had all the possible advantages. I mean, there's no question about that. I had access to healthcare. Um, and, but it was definitely sobering. And which when you realized, I mean, it, to me, I, I could only, I only became more pro-choice because I realized nobody should have to do this if they didn't absolutely want to, right. because it's, it's, it was challenging. Yeah. It's a sucker punch. Yeah. Yep. I know. And I think that we do women a lot of service to tell it like it is. I mean, yes, there are absolutely. those rosy pink gold moments of wonder where everyone's wrapped in a fleecy blanket and the baby is smiling at you. That happens for a minute. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And no, absolutely. And people don't tell it how it is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've made it my mission to, I I used to, you know, terrify uh, young women in my office by telling all my stories. Yeah. And especially then they would feel bad because they'd come in and tell me that, you know, oh, I'm going to, I'm pregnant. I'm like, that's great. They're like, really? You think so? I said, 
I wasn't trying to scare you off of it. I'm just trying to be honest. I want us all to talk about it. Yeah, 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 definitely. So some women that I've spoken to specifically in Sweden said that they had their babies at home and part of, and you know, that's part of the healthcare system option that is structured and available for women. Um, And then they had a midwife or a nurse who came to their house every single day for weeks to check on them and the baby. So there's this built-in safety net during the postpartum period that we don't have anything like here in the U.S. Yeah. No, and yeah. and I didn't. Yeah, and and that wasn't um it wasn't present in in Switzerland. They, their their system is very similar to ours. In fact, it's a it's it, you're required to have health insurance, but um you um it's it's managed through private health insurance companies, mm-hmm. um and it's a very you know it's not a central government controlled system, so it's more similar to ours. But yeah, in the Scandinavian countries, the amount of support that's available in the postpartum period, not to mention you know uh, parental leave policies. Uh, right. The combination of those two things really provides an amazing amount of support in that really difficult postpartum period. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, a lot of women go into pre- prenatal care, you know, with very little experience in managing their own health care. You know, they they might be young women or, you know, used to, you know, they're healthy. Maybe they've never had a need before to be involved in the healthcare system. And, you know, they're probably... A, kind of used to doing as their healthcare providers tell them, kind of no questions mm-hmm. asked. And, but then, you know, there's another growing group of women who are really cautious about being overtreated and they, they go into, as you mentioned earlier, you know, their prenatal care experience with a sense of distrust. And right. then there's, as we mentioned others, there's still this other group of women, particularly women of color, who have good reason to assume that they're not going to get good care and that their needs are going to be overlooked or disregarded or not believed. And I believe that, you know, ultimately women have to guide their own ship when it comes to getting the right care for themselves. But how do we teach women to do that? How do we teach them to trust us, to, you know, take take the reins? Um, and make sure they get their own needs met. Well, I think it comes, I think there's a base level of information that as a society, we're not teaching women and men, girls or boys. Um, you know, so basic information about your body, basic information about the function of your body. And so I think that you go in, a lot of women go into healthcare providers with this, it, there's a huge, I mean, obviously there's always going to, your healthcare provider, the reason you're going is because they have been through training and they know more and, and, you know, and they can help with the scientific part of it, but there's such an information um, mismatch, um, you know, and, and that they're coming in such a disadvantage. And unfortunately, when a healthcare provider will say something that maybe contradicts something that a woman might've read on the internet or heard from a friend, she automatically assumes maybe she's being lied to when in fact, maybe the healthcare provider is right. And unfortunately, you know, the, the woman has been misinformed um, because we just haven't provided a basic level of not only just sexuality education, but just healthcare literacy, I think mm-hmm. um, is, is what's missing. And so, you know, you're just at such a, a disadvantage and then to, to have to just not know who to trust because you don't know this person and you don't know how to vet the information because right. we've just, we failed, I think, um, you know, in the early part of, of, health education and not just, but especially, you know, as it relates to our topic, 
you know, sexuality education and reproductive health education, um, that there's just such a lack of of knowledge. And it's so hard to discuss. And there's so much, so much judgment that goes into it. Even, you know, for those of us who are sort of trained to be non-judgmental, still, you know, it's very human stuff, very human stuff. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. Yeah. When it's about your own stuff too, it's always feels much different <laughs> um, right. in right. terms of, yeah. And I think that the, the amount of uh, shame um, mm-hmm. and, you know, that, that women feel because of their lack of knowledge, because of the lack of ability to speak about things so you don't know that other people are experiencing this too, um, right. you know, and, and then not wanting to bring it up with your healthcare provider because you don't even trust them. Um, yeah. You know, it's sort of a vicious circle. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for young women, you know, they're, women tend to go through these huge life experiences of getting pregnant and becoming a parent sort of at the same time as their friends, you know, so their, their cohorts and the people that they're bumping heads with are all as new to it as they are. And I think that there's a real advantage to, you know, asking women in other demographics and other age groups you know, what happened for you? What was it like for you? And you get to find out not only, you know, a whole lot of really useful information, um, but, you know, kind of a wide range of perspectives that you can then try on, which you know, it's interesting God knows that it, it reminds me of that. Yeah. And I don't know, I can't remember what it's called. You probably do remember what it's called, but the, the new sort of movement towards having um, group prenatal care. Um, yeah. Centering pregnancy. There you go. Centering yeah. groups. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that that yeah. sounds a lot like, you know, addressing some of those um, issues if done correctly. Yeah. 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 It's It seems to be a pretty effective trend right now. And it creates a sense of community. Right. But, you know, that also is sort of a limited pool of women and experiences. You're all in it together, but you're all at the sta- same stage of life. Right. So I think that there's a huge advantage for women to reach to the generation older than them or two generations and, you know, hear how it was for them and what they did. Sure. Because, yeah. you know, they're going to look back and they're going to say, oh, honey, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, you've been very outspoken in your career about changing gender stereotypes in the medical field. And you know, kind of joined with that is, you know, for a lot of women, feminism and gender stereotypes don't really even become relevant in their lives until they become mothers. You know, they kind of think everything's fine. You know, they've been through school, they played on sports teams, they are doing well in their careers or not or whatever. But the issues that women face that um, either you know make or break them as parents and then as women capable of of thriving um motherhood'll do it to you and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that well absolutely yeah well I think that you know what a lot of times women who maybe have been sort of overachievers their whole life and have done well in school and maybe you know done well in sports and whatever it might be um Pregnancy is really the the almost the great equalizer in a way. Um, I mean, without mm-hmm. question, you know, those of us who have um, more advantages are also going to have more advantages in pregnancy and, and parenthood. There's no question about that. But you get taken down several pegs <laughs> in terms of that because you can't control, you know, your your 
your privilege and your um, your situation can't necessarily control all the factors that you know nature is going to throw at you. And I think that right. you start to realize, you know, as an example, when I was at at um, in Switzerland, you know, I was working for the World Health Organization, and I had four months off uh, for paid uh, maternity leave, which to me was um, an, an eternity of time compared to what I was used to seeing women have in the U.S. And right. I remember as an obstetrician, you know, when I would have women come in and ask me for more time than their six weeks, I, you know, part of me almost rolled my eyes and thought, oh, why do you need more time? I don't know. And then when I got to the end of my four months and realized I was nowhere near ready to go back to work and be you know, yeah. fully functioning with, with zero sleep and, you know, trying to breast pump and all of those things, even though my, I, I could recognize that my work environment was about as good as you could get for that mm-hmm. situation compared to other women. It, it just, it hit me in the face how yeah. difficult it is. And I think you don't realize how difficult it is until you feel it for yourself. And then hopefully you have you know, for those of us who have some, you know, amount of privilege too, you, you can recognize as hard as this is, just imagine, you know, how much harder it could be if you didn't have X, Y, Z. So right. um, that was, even for me, a, a time when I really refocused my understanding of the importance of, um, you know, paternal leave is just an example, um, but I mean, not yeah. paternal leave, but parental leave um, and paternal yeah. leave for that matter. <laughs> The whole darn thing. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. We, as parents, we need a break during that really, really vulnerable time in our lives mm-hmm. to be able to take care of ourselves and get, you know, take care of our babies. Right. It's so critical. And so many other countries are doing that right. But it's among the many, many ways that U.S. policies don't support women. Absolutely. You know, across the board. Yeah. I mean, from, from beginning right. to end. Yeah. From beginning to end. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. So what else do we want to talk about, Kelly? I mean, we've talked about quite a few things. I'm always interested in talking to doctors about, you know, power dynamics that, mm. ugh, that was hard to even say, power <laughs> dynamics that exist in healthcare settings. Yeah, Some of that is really, you know, feminist based. It's definitely gender norms. Right. Um, you want to talk about that? So do you mean the, the gender norms of the power imbalance between healthcare providers and patients or you mean within no, healthcare? I- I mean, within healthcare. I mean, like ideally, you know, everybody on the team, doctors, midwives, nurses, all the healthcare professionals, everybody works on a team. And ideologically, there's no hierarchy of authority. Everybody brings, you know, their unique knowledge and skills to the labor room or the medical office. But in reality, that's not the way it is. Right. I mean, there's a huge authority and power dynamic that goes on every minute of the day. And Doctors are at the top of the heap. Mm -hmm. Duh. Midwives (laughs) might come next with nurses somewhere trailing after that. And even among nurses, there's rank, you know, with administrative nurses generally have more clout than staff nurses. And we learn, you know, we all learn one way or another early on in our, at least in our nursing careers, that since doctors are money generators, you know, they bring patients and billable procedures to the hospital and nurses are expenses, mm. we have to be paid to provide our services. 
And since hospitals are businesses and doctors bring the money, then doctors have the power. Mm-hmm. How do we get around that? Or should we? Yeah, you know, well, I that's a big that was a big one, huh? Yeah, no, <laughs> but I, I think it's actually a really I mean, it's 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 quite clear from the you know the literature on patient safety uh, that the more you can create a egalitarian environment where there's not the hierarchy and the huge power imbalance between doctors and nurses. Um, when people, when all people on the team have the ability to speak up when they see something, um, that increases patient safety dramatically. It's almost, I think, one of the biggest um, drivers of, of, of patient safety. When, you know, because I think it's, but, but I think a huge barrier to that is medical training. Because medical training yeah. teaches you that you absolutely have to be infallible. Uh, that you cannot admit, you can't admit wrongdoing. You can't admit when you don't know something um, because that's seen as a sign of weakness. I mean, I remember being on rounds as a medical student and literally having my uh, resident tell me, never tell the attending you don't know the potassium level again. If they ask you for a potassium level, you make one up. And yeah. then you go back and you double check it and you make sure that you weren't dramatically off. Um, right. That's crazy. You know, and, that's and, and, but that's the, you, if you can't say, I don't know, or I'll have to look that up or I'll get back to you, uh, even though that should be the answer, you know, probably more than half the time when you're just being asked something directly right. on the spot, you know, think about it. If you yeah. had a doctor, you know, and you went into their office and they said, oh, you know what? I'm not sure about this. I've got to go look it up in my book and I'll be right back. Probably a yeah. lot of people would be very shaken by that. Whereas that's probably the best thing for that doctor to do. And so, because of that culture, I think it's difficult for doctors to allow that a nurse, a midwife, a medical assistant, you know, an anesthesiologist, a nurse, anesthetist, anything that they might see something that the doctor hasn't seen and that could contribute to patient safety. Um, and so I think more yeah. and more systems that are being put in place to involve sort of the team rounding approach, the, the you know, the team huddle, the um, even the timeouts, all of those things where you're everybody on the team is forced to speak. Um, I think that's going to help because it's really the only way to patient safety. You can't, it's too much pressure to have the only person who can make a decision be the doctor in the room. Yeah. I also think that, you know, since doctors and nurses and midwives are all trained sort of in silos, they don't know what each other know. They don't know. Yeah. So, you know, if there were opportunities where, you know, in medical school, you had to do rotations working directly with midwives. Well, then doctors would get it, what their skill set, training, and knowledge base is. It wouldn't be a mystery. And and even, you know, I don't know how it would work out, but there isn't a nurse alive who doesn't want to tell a doctor, fine, you work a 12-hour night shift with us, wiping butts and drawing blood, and then tell me you're the authority. Right. You know? Right. And I know that I'm saying it strongly, but if everybody was trained and knew what each other's job really entailed, there'd be a lot more respect. Yeah, I I agree with you. I absolutely do. And, you know, um, one of the things that my residency did is we worked, we did rotations um, at Planned Parenthood. And some of that opportunity was we were able to work with nurse practitioners or physician assistants Mm -hmm. in in the clinic setting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people, uh, you know, rolled their eyes at the idea that we would be, you know, shadowing a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. And I, I thought it was terrific because, 
you, you know, some of the stuff that I've learned from nurse practitioners um, it, it has really helped uh, just because of the way that they were trained. They had different, you know, uh, for example, just knowing about pelvic floor, the, you know, a women's health nurse practitioner, you know, who had so much experience dealing with pelvic floor disorders. Um, it was so helpful to me as a resident. Um, but, you know, I, I think we have to change a little bit of the culture of medicine around sort of the ego um, that has, and that, you know, largely came from the fact that it was historically, you know, largely men and, you know, um, mm -hmm. and, and nurses were, you know, primarily women. And so that was the whole dynamic that started it, I think. Um, but yeah, that, I think it's gradually changing, you know, as more and more women yeah. are getting into medicine. Um, I, I think that is gradually changing. And as more and more men are getting into yeah, nursing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they're, they're actually, um, you know, bringing it for nursing. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, ha I had a doctor friend tell me that her rotation working with um, nurse practitioners was, she said, that's where I learned what I didn't learn in medical mm -hmm. school, which is to make the human connection, make it fast, make it now and move right. on. Without that human connection and doing it real, real early in your patient care process, you know, hardly anything else really is going to matter. And so all the smart doctors learn that from the nurses on the floor real fast. Yeah. Well, honestly, <laughs> if they don't come to it naturally. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't want to sound sycophantic, but honestly, my experience with labor and delivery nurses, I learned quite quickly, um, listen to them. <laughs> Oh, don't, yeah. I mean, oh, not yeah. only can your life be made incredibly miserable, but you're going to, you're going to have <laughs> a much better, exactly. You're going to have a much better uh, outcome if you listen to the labor delivery nurse who's been doing this yeah. for a long time, day in, day out, every minute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Without yeah. question. Yeah. 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 Well, hey, I, before I ask you my final two questions, I want to do a little experiment this week that I haven't done before on the podcast. And I'm hoping you'll give it a try sure. with me. Okay. I got an email from a listener, Whitney, and I want to read it to you and get your take on it. And then I already read it to a midwife friend of mine, Chris Beard, who's a, a CNM, Certified Nurse Midwife. Um, and she does births up at Kaiser here in Portland. She's been on the podcast several times. So um, she's going to give her answer and I want to hear your answer. And I'm hoping that between the two of you, we'll give our listener a couple of opinions about her question. Great. Yeah. Sound good? Great. Okay. Okay. Here is Whitney's letter. She writes, hi, Jeannie. I started listening to the Common Sense Pregnancy podcast over two years ago when my husband and I decided we definitely wanted to start a family. Getting pregnant took us quite a while, but we're finally expecting due in March. I am 32 years old, have always been very healthy, and my goal is to have a natural birth in a hospital, meaning as few interventions as possible. However, my midwife recently told me that I have a bilober placenta. She said that the standard procedure in such a case is to induce if I do not go into labor naturally by my due date, and also to have me go straight to the hospital if I go into labor at home to begin fetal monitoring immediately. I'm struggling to see how I can still have a natural birth given these protocols. This is my first pregnancy, so my chances of going past my due date are pretty high, and based on the way I was tracking things the month I got pregnant, I'm fairly confident that my due date is about five days too early anyway. Also, I have heard a lot about the pitfalls of continuous fetal monitoring. I, oh, 
caveat, I believe from one of your recent podcasts. The combination of these two things seems almost certain to lead to interventions such as induction or a C-section. Do you have any tips on how I can balance the risks posed by a bilobar placenta with my desire to have a natural birth? Assuming that my baby is growing properly, which will be monitoring with which we will be monitoring with extra ultrasounds for the remainder of the pregnancy, I'm considering pushing back if they want to induce me on my due date. What is your experience with placenta issues such as this? How dangerous is it really? How do you recommend I discuss this? issue with my midwife who wants to follow protocols. I really appreciate your advice, particularly because most of the books I've been reading don't talk about problems that arise because of issues with the placenta. Thanks so much, Whitney. Whew. Mm-hmm. She kind of covers all the questions, yes. all the everything that it's a, it's a big letter. L- let's start with um, kind of just defining the terms. What is a bilobar placenta? Right. So it's not a term that's used that commonly. Um, sometimes you'll see it referred to as a, a succinturate uh, placenta. Um, and what it basically means is that bilobar sort of implies that, that there is um, an additional segment of the placenta that's not connected to the other segment of placenta by the placenta tissue itself. So it's usually connected with um, some membranes and sometimes blood vessels. So it's sort of this additional little, what we might call an accessory uh, lobe of the placenta um, that sits alongside the, the primary lobe of the placenta. And it can be small or it can be larger. And oftentimes when they're talking about bilobar, it might mean that the two sides are actually fairly similar in size as opposed to just saying an accessory lobe of the placenta might be a little bit smaller than the main part of it. Okay. So what are the risks that her provider is concerned about that would cause her to recommend, you know, induction if she doesn't go into labor naturally by her due date and continuous monitoring? Yeah. So, you know, we don't have all the information, obviously, from this letter in terms of things like where is the placenta located? So is the, is the placenta, right. you know, low, you know, kind of bordering on placenta previa, which increases the risk. It, we also don't have information about where the, um, the umbilical cord is inserting into the placenta. So sometimes if the umbilical cord inserts into sort of the corner or the, the edge of the placenta, um, that can increase your risk. But, but overall, I think the, the risks probably that, that are being uh, uh, talked about here are the potential for there to be some blood vessels that connect these two lobes of the placenta that might rupture or break open during labor. And if those blood vessels are big enough, um, that could potentially cause a hemorrhage during labor. Um, and you know, if, if you weren't monitoring that situation, um, could potentially lead to fetal death, which is probably why um, she has been talking about the continuous fetal monitoring. Um, right. Yeah. In the absence of the placenta being low lying or the, um, the, the cord being uh, marginally inserted into the placenta, which would increase the risk that the umbilical cord itself could, could be ruptured off. You know, it, it's hard to really quantify how much those risks are, are, are real, like how, how great those risks are. And I think, just simply just by having a bilobar placenta. And particularly, you know, the other thing that she notes is that she's going to be, they're going to be monitoring fetal growth. 
um, you know, which would be the other concern is, is, is the fetus getting enough um, sort of you know, nutrients through the placenta to be able to grow adequately if it's not doesn't have access to the entire placenta uh, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, so the risks would really be you know around these potentials for these blood vessels that connect the two lobes to break open, um, and 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 if that weren't um, detected, then you know that could lead to problems during labor. So her concern <clears throat> is that you know, she's a healthy young woman and she's being caught by surprise by a potential complication, you know, right, you know, during the time where she's starting to gear up, she's due in March. So she's just got a few months to go. She's starting to think about labor and delivery and what she wants her birth to be like. And she's, you know, concerned about that cavalcade of interventions that, you know, maybe she is in line for. Mm -hmm. And when somebody goes into, you know, their, the end of their pregnancy like that, it, it can be frightening and it's hard to know, how do I get what I want and still make the right healthcare decisions? You know, it's, it's a tricky one. It's really hard. And I, yeah. And it's hard yeah. for healthcare providers too, because ultimately, you know, for a healthcare provider, we are always going, especially in obstetrics we are always going to recommend the most conservative approach. Um, I mean, almost always, you know, you, you're very risk averse. And if you've either seen thing, one thing happen one time, um, even if the maybe, you know, a full body of data wouldn't support that being a common occurrence, um, or if there is, you know, even the most minute chance of something um, bad happening, you're gonna want to avoid that at all costs. And, and the issue is, mm -hmm. is that, that often, that value system is often different than what the values of, of the woman are. And, and there may mm -hmm. be, uh, you know, a woman may be willing to accept a, a slightly greater amount of risk than the healthcare provider would be because the, uh, the converse is that they will get an exceptional amount of benefit from avoiding that particular intervention. You know, and so it's all about mm -hmm. the risk benefit ratio. And I think it's very difficult for healthcare providers and, and patients to have that conversation if they don't understand what each other sees as the risks and the benefits of both the intervention and not intervening. Yeah. I think also that there's some value to knowing sort of what's on the horizon. There is a potential that she's going to need an induction. There's a potential that she's going to need, you know, further interventions after that. But there's also a really good potential that she won't. Exactly that she's going to be just fine. Yep. And so, you know, it's kind of good to know that, yeah, that might happen, but I don't actually have to make the commitment to do that today. We can keep going. We can keep watching. We can keep looking. And if the day should come that something else pushes the scale, you know, something comes up, then you can make decisions then. I think there's a lot to be said for being prepared, but then you can make decisions a little at a time. Heck, we all know that we can get a patient from the labor room to the, you know, a fully delivered baby in the OR in 10 minutes or less if necessary. We can move fast if we have to. Right. We can also take our time in making incremental common sense decisions together. Yeah. And I think it's a combination of one thing that I think is very frightening for women when it comes to delivery um, is the inability well, once they realize that they aren't in full control, um, and, and it's not that we're 
exceeding all control to the healthcare provider. It's just that nature does its thing. (laughs) Um, And and you can't control what's going to happen to you. Um, Even if you, you know, even if you weren't listening to anybody else, you can't control what's happening to you. And that is very frightening because this, it sounds like this, you know, this woman definitely has planned things out very well. And she would like Mm -hmm. to plan ahead and she would like to know exactly what's going to happen at each step along the way. And unfortunately, you know, it may be a, a thing, as you say, where it maybe perhaps it's better to not try to do that right now and to take things kind of one step at a time. Um, yeah. But she's absolutely right. I mean, she's very astute in knowing that, you know, she any of those interventions that she's talking about do definitely increase the potential that she will have, you know, interventions during her childbirth. That's absolutely true. And I so I absolutely, yeah. you know, I understand her concerns and, and her worries. Um, but you know, to me, the fact that she's already going to be in a hospital to start with, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that she has, there's a lot more, um, wiggle room in terms of what can be done. You know, if, if she were saying that, you know, she had been planning to deliver at home and now she's going to have to deliver in the hospital, you know, I think that's a whole nother step. At least she was already planning to be there. So now there's, you know, there's a lot more incrementally that. Um, that can happen and decisions can be made a bit at a time. Yeah, I I think so. I think let's not catastrophize anything. It's probably going to be okay. Yeah, more likely it's than probably not. probably all going to be okay. Yeah. Way more likely than not. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, Kelly, you and I have been talking a long time, but I ask everybody these last two questions. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Oh, nobody ever told me that. Um, this is just anything. <laughs> this is wide open. Anything you want. Anything you want. Wide open. Wow. Okay. Um, nobody ever told me that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to cut out some of this because while well, I'm thinking. Um, Nobody ever told me that um, oh. <laughs> I feel like maybe maybe I've been told too much. <laughs> that's my problem. Maybe you know. No, okay. I, don't. I stumped you. I'm sorry, I've been stumped. That's a really great question. I wish I could think of something. <laughs> well, I'm gonna let you off the hook. Okay, sorry. I'll think of it later and I'll send it no to you problem. by email. You can add it in the show notes. I actually I I actually love this question. It kind of reveals that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. That's actually part of the problem. Maybe nobody ever, yeah, maybe nobody ever told you what you don't know yet. You'll find, we'll out. find out. To soon. be continued. You'll find out soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then my last question is this. Where are you in the world of motherhood? Mm, I am, um, I am just, I feel like I am just um, coming over the first, bend or maybe coming over the first mountain. Um, I feel like we've successfully made it through um, early childhood and I'm about ready to curve into tween years. Um, And I recognize that um, every time I think I have it figured out, it changes. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm deep in the journey, but I I think I've just finished that first that first curve of, of early childhood. And I have a long way to go. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah. It's a, it's a good, it's a good 
good long way to go. Yeah. But emphasis emphasis on good. Emphasis on good, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Kelly, it's been really fun to talk to you. I really appreciate your your time on the podcast with us today. And I hope that you'll come back and join us again down the road. I would love to. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. So that was a fun conversation. I'm thinking Kelly and I could probably talk all day. But as I mentioned, we're doing an experiment this week. We read Whitney's letter and Kelly, aka Dr. Lady Doctor, gave us her perspective. Now I want to get our favorite midwife's opinion. Let's get Chris Beard on the line. Hi, Chris. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, Jeannie. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for um, taking part in this experiment. That's the first time that we've had, you know, two opinions on one listener email. And I think it's kind of cool. I'm hoping that I can kind of keep this going. Yeah. So you read Whitney's letter, right? I did read Whitney's letter. And what did you think? Well, I think I'm I'm so glad that she found your podcast two years ago, and it sounds like it's made a big um, impact on her life, and that she's educated herself about pregnancy and about what she's hoping for for her labor and birth. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty exciting. I know. I like that, too. Um, <laughs> and I like the fact that she was going to a midwife. Of course, I always like that, since mm-hmm. I am a midwife. Mm-hmm. Me, too. Um, Me, too. And honestly, I was a little... I was a little bit puzzled um, by the approach that she has been uh, suggested to take Um, because a bilobed placenta is a variation of normal. I did some extra reading this morning to make sure that I remembered way back to the days of my midwifery education, and Mm -hmm. it is a variation of normal. The main risks that are identified with a bilobed placenta are postpartum bleeding and bleeding during pregnancy. Um, Mm -hmm. So neither of those things would be a reason for someone to be induced on their due date. Um, A risk of bleeding postpartum is not a risk. It's not a need to be induced on your due date. Um, It looks like there are some other um, situations that can happen with a bilobed placenta, like uh, a vasa previa, which is not what she described here. A vasa previa is when the vessels are across the the umbilical vessels are across the the opening of the cervix, and that is a dangerous mm-hmm. situation for labor. And that would be a s- scheduled C section if you had a vasa previa. But um, yeah. a bilobed placenta is kind of like blonde hair, brown hair. You know, you can have one or you can not have one. It's a variation of normal. Um. So I, in our institution, this would not be the approach. So I guess I'm a little um, puzzled by the approach to insist that someone be induced on their due date for this condition. What do you think about that? Well, I tend to agree with you. Um, I think that uh, the previous opinion that we had was really um, targeting um, you know, some of the more extreme placental anomalies that we see, you know, things that can happen with a a placenta that is different or fragile or, you know, something like that. But it does, it doesn't always make sense to me that you make great big plans for down the road based on risks that may or may not happen. I think it's, you know, a wait and see approach. I would agree. And I will also add that I've been in practice for 25 years. 
And when I first Mm -hmm. um, exited midwifery school, routine ultrasound was not standard. So people only got ultrasound if they were measuring too large or too small, or there was another indication for an ultrasound. And so, you know, I spent the first, you know, good five to 10 years of my career without everyone having an ultrasound. And so, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of ultrasound has really changed the way we do things for the better and for the worse. But one of the ways in which it's changed things, not necessarily for the better, is that we see a lot of things that are variations of normal that we didn't used to see, if that makes sense. Right. And and then we freak out on them sometimes. You know, if your baby is growing well and you don't have one of the other dangerous placental abnormalities like a a vasa previa or a placenta previa or a placenta accreta, then to me, there isn't a reason for an induction at your due date. Um, Because it's not, how how can she she push back? back? I think she can have a conversation with her midwife and ask the midwife to um, share with her what is the rationale for this induction at 40 weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think she can she can push back and say that um, she doesn't want to be induced. The truth is that your provider can't make you do anything, and all we can do is recommend and suggest. Right. Um, and I feel like my job as a yep. midwife is to educate my patients on the pros and the cons, and they make their own decision based on what what what's important to them. After I've shared the pros and the cons, and yeah. Yeah, you know, in induction yeah. is a big intervention, and it's certainly when it's indicated. If you have a baby that's not growing well, if you don't have amniotic fluid, if you're approaching forty-two weeks, all those all those indications are are appropriate for induction. But if it's not appropriate, it's a big um, undertaking, and it really does change the way your birth unfolds. Yeah. And so I personally don't take induction lightly. Um, and I think it's appropriate to have a, have an open conversation with your provider is what is the rationale? Not just, this is what we do in this institution. Why do you do that in this institution? Tell me what the risks and benefits mm-hmm. are. Um, and if there's something spe- more specific about her placenta, mm-hmm. um, then that would, that would maybe shift your thinking. But if it's just purely a bilobed placenta, that's a variation of normal. And I, I personally wouldn't agree to an induction for a bilobed placenta. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it sounds like her, I, I wanted to just talk just All a right. titch about induction. You know, it sounds like her strongest desire to, is to have a minimally yeah. interventive birth. And um, I'm assuming that means that she wants an unmedicated birth. And it is possible to have an unmedicated birth if you have an induction, but it is it, is, it requires a lot of intestinal fortitude and a lot of support. Um, we certainly have people who do it, but it's not the norm. Right. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you. I think that we have given Whitney two really good, solid opinions. And Whitney, I hope that this helps. Um, take this information with you to your next prenatal care appointment and you know, get a little bit more information if you need it. Chris, thank you. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome, Jeannie. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Okay, bye-bye. Mama 
That's it for this week, folks. You can learn more about Dr. Kelly Colwell at www.drladydoctor.com. And you can learn more about me and this podcast and the work I do over at genefaulkner.com. How do you spell it? J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and please help me make it the book to buy when you find out you're pregnant. Just go wherever books are sold, Amazon, Target, your local bookstore, anywhere, and pick up a copy of Common Sense Pregnancy. Common Sense Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Music Studios. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk again next week. Common Sense Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is part of the Parents on Demand Network, a curated collection of podcasts all about pregnancy and parenting. If you like my podcast, you'll probably like Newbies, too. Newbies is another one of POD Network's collection. Give it a listen here. The wait is over and your new baby is here. But it didn't come with an instruction manual. That's why there's Newbies, an audio podcast guiding new mothers through their baby's first year of life. Listen as newly postpartum moms celebrate the excitement of becoming new parents and share the emotional and physical struggles of recovering from childbirth and caring for a newborn baby. Newbies is part of the Parents on Demand Network. Look for our free network app in Apple and Android to discover more great parenting shows and listen to your favorite episodes on the go.